take your Bibles, please, and turn to the 18th chapter of 1 Samuel. I suspect from some of the comments that I've heard from some of you from time to time that our current series on David has dispelled some of the uh, uh, childhood notions that you uh, have carried with you about David. Uh, Not that those are necessarily wrong, it's just that sometimes they're not uh, complete, uh, complete enough. I hope you've seen from your own reading and from your time in the growth groups and from our studies here on on Sunday morning something of David's uh, true character. Uh, David had a very difficult beginning. He was he was wounded in his origins. Uh, he was an abused child, and he bore those scars all through his life. He was a tough customer. He grew up in a bad neighborhood. Uh, A lot of his life, his early life, was uh, spent living as a bandit in the hills, surrounded by uh, a band of thieves. He supported himself through a protection racket. He uh, protected the shepherds and the flocks of his tribesmen and then exacted tribute from them. It was a hard life. David was not a gentleman, but then this wasn't a, a genteel age. This was a hard, cold period of, uh, of history. But what you see from time to time in David is uh, that he transcends his time. He, uh, we begin to, to get glimpses of the David that God saw and the ways by which God shaped him and made him into the man that God had eternally envisioned him to be. And we just we have just one of those moments uh, this morning in chapter 18, just a little glimpse into, into what David was as, as God was recreating this, uh, this man, redefining him, integrating all of his, his passions and drives and desires into one. Let's begin reading with verse 5 of Verse 5 is really a summary of the entire chapter encompassing everything that occurs and stresses David's uh, meteoric rise in the military. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. And you understand that David was uh, promoted over the heads of older, more experienced warriors, and and yet they were pleased to follow him. And I say to myself, that's not natural. What what was it about David that enabled him to handle that very difficult situation? It would be awkward for him to lead these more experienced veterans, and yet they... They gave their allegiance to him, and they followed him. And I have to ask myself, what, what quality did David have in his life that evoked that kind of loyalty? Verse 6 is a flashback to what happened immediately after David's duel with Goliath. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs. And with tambourines and lutes, and as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his 
tens of thousands. That's a bit of local color. That's, uh, that's part of the culture of the ancient Near Eastern world. That's, that's the way they did things. And they had triumphal processions after a great victory. And dancing girls would uh, precede the procession. They would, uh, they would sing and they would wax poetic. And uh, what you see here in this poem is the, the kind of uh, poetry that you find in a lot of ancient Near Eastern cultures. The Canaanites had exactly the same saying, so-and-so has chased a thousand, so-and-so has chased ten thousand. It's a cliche. It's all it is. But uh, Saul didn't see it as a cliche. Uh, verse 8, Saul was, was angry. Hebrew word means to be burned up. He was outraged. He burned with resentment. This refrain, refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with, with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? He thought that behind David's uh, efforts on, on the field had been his, uh, an effort to grasp the throne. And uh, he kept a jealous eye on David from that time on. Uh, the next day, an evil spirit, the very next day after this triumphal procession, you know, somewhat like a ticker tape parade down Wall Street in New York. Homage was paid to David, and the very next day, Saul was having one of his bad days. He was in one of the manic phases of his mental illness. And an evil spirit from God came forcibly upon Saul. Statements like that bother us. All I can say is that the authors of the Old Testament don't uh, ever... Think of God in terms of secondary sources. God is behind everything. And, and while he is not responsible for evil, nothing happens that he doesn't permit. And while uh, Saul was uh, raging about the house, we're told, David was playing his harp to try to calm him, as he often did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he, and he hurled it, saying, I'll pin David to the wall. Uh, but David uh, literally turned. He, he twisted aside and uh, the spear uh, missed and, and stuck in the wall. This happened more than once. Probably happened more than twice. This uh, expression, he alluded him twice, is uh, really a Hebrew idiom that suggests that there are a number of times that this, that this occurred. And I asked myself, what was it about David that gave him the courage to go back into into Saul's presence again and again, to face this homicidal maniac and know that his life was in jeopardy every time he walked into his presence, but to go in there with assurance and confidence and poise and to bring out his harp and begin to sing his, his hymns, his psalms to Saul. There's something extraordinary about this, uh, this man. In verse 12, we're told that, that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. He figured that David was too quick to kill with his own hand, and so he decided on some indirect method. If he could get him engaged in a war affair with the Philistines, they would take his life. Apparently, uh, Israel's army had lost, uh, lost a lot of men to the Philistines, and he thought, he hoped that this would happen to to David's tantamount to putting a contract out on his life. But in everything 
David did. He had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And if this were a, a Western melodrama, you'd have Saul raging about in his uh, palace, muttering under his breath, curses, foiled again. But Saul was not a man to be uh, easily fo- foiled. He uh, tried to palm off his daughter Mirab to David, ostensibly to pay back the uh, the uh, the arrangement to uh, he had he had promised that he would give one of his daughters to whoever uh, killed the Philistine giant, and ostensibly this was to fulfill that pledge. But in reality, it was uh, again. Because he sought David's life. Saul said to David, here's my older, uh, older daughter Merab. I'll give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. But as Saul said that, he was thinking underneath. There were things going through his mind. You get these glimpses of, the, of Saul's manic thoughts, the machinations of his mind that in fact he, was, he wanted David dead. Uh, he said, uh, I'll not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Saul welched on on the deal. And I have to ask myself, what was it about David that, that... gave him the, the wisdom and the, and the skill to be able to see through Saul's uh, real motives. S- something's going on here that, that isn't, isn't so obvious on the surface. There's a quality about David's life that, that enables him to make his way through the intrigues of the court and not step on landmines and, and not destroy himself. And so I, I asked myself, what, what's going on here? What is it about this, this man that sets him apart from others? And then in verse 20, we're, we're told that Saul tries again. He, he discovered that his daughter, younger daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. And apparently David turned him down once or twice, and David and Saul's attendants kept coming back and pleading with David, and eventually they, they repeated to, uh, to David Saul's words, and David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. In other words, I... I'm in poverty. I, I can't pay the, di- the dowry that uh, would be expected of a, of a king's daughter. Actually, the dowry had already been paid. He had already killed the, the giant. But Saul was after his life. Saul, Saul's servants told David uh, what Saul had said. Saul, pardon me, Saul's servants told him what David had said. Saul replied, say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride, no other dowry than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. 
when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter Michal in, in marriage. Uh, in the interests of uh, delicacy, we will pass quickly over this uh, Philistine challenge. Uh, except to say that uh, David fulfilled twice the requirements of this, uh, this challenge in less than the required time. Now, this seems uh, to be very cold and calculating and cruel to us, and it was. That was the age in which David lived. That was a very cold and hard uh, world. I've mentioned before that that the Philistines are uniquely described as uncircumcised Philistines because most of the people in the ancient world circumcised their children, not because it was a a hygienic uh, gesture, but because it was tied into their religions. In almost every nation, it was tied into that sense of loyalty to to God that people have in, in their religions. The Egyptians circumcised their children. They have pictures on the walls palaces describing this operation. But the Philistines were uniquely described as uncircumcised because there was something about the Philistines that set them apart. It was a blatant disregard for God. They were full-blown humanists. They didn't need God. And they flaunted that uh, resistance to God. And perhaps this is what was behind uh, Saul's challenge. Now, beyond that, I, I... I don't want to say anything more. I'll let you, uh, I'll let you deal with the issue, except to say this was a very hard and cold and tough world that David grew up in. It was life in the ancient uh, Near East. And David fulfilled the challenge in less than the time, fulfilled uh, twice the uh, allotted number. And again, I have to ask myself, what was it about David that enabled him to make his way through the... Uh, through Saul's strategies and to engage in battle with the Philistines and, and to survive, and to act so wisely, to be so adroit and skillful. And we look at his life and we say, what a, what a clever young man, wise beyond his, beyond his years, knowing when to say no to Saul, knowing when to say yes, knowing how to handle all of the events of life with, uh, with real skill and wisdom. And I ask myself, where does, where does this come from? Now, uh, the, the chapter ends with, uh, in verse 30 with a statement about David's uh, fame. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became, became well-known. David became an almost legendary figure, a kind of Homeric hero whose name was known all over the ancient world. Uh, he was David the, the lion-hearted, David the courageous. They wrote songs about him, and they, they waxed poetic about him, and, and they loved him and admired him and respected him, and his name spread throughout the, uh, the ancient world. And again, we ask... What, what were the qualities of this man's life that gave him that sort of uh, impact? There are several emphases in this passage as I, as I read through it, and I noted a number of repeated phrases. 
Repeated words and phrases in, the, in these Old Testament narrative sections are always very, very important because they tell us what was important to the author. It's just literary styles. One of the ways that the writers of, of the Old Testament let us know what's important. And there are three emphases in this, uh, in this section. The first is a, uh, is a clustering together of words that suggest strong emotion. These are emotive terms. Love and hate and, and fear and dread and respect and honor. Words like that. Uh, gut reactions, we would say. Wherever David went, he evoked strong emotional reactions. Jonathan loved him at first sight. Sounds strange to say that about, about two men, but the moment Jonathan laid hand, eyes on him, he loved him, we're told. Uh, the women loved him and made up songs and waxed eloquent over, over David. Uh, Mirab loved him. Michal loved him. Uh, the, the people from Israel and Judah loved him. His warriors loved him. There's that wonderful story later, later on where David is in the cave of, of Adullam and he just uh, utters a, a desire, a request. He says, I just wish I had a drink of water out of the spring that's near my uh, hometown. And his men, without saying a word to him under cover of darkness, fought their way through the Philistine guards that were surrounding that, uh, that spring and they, they got a cup of water and they brought it back to David. They were willing to lay their life on the line for David. That was the kind of loyalty that, that he evoked. People loved David. And Saul hated him. Dreaded him. Feared him. Uh, was burned up when he thought of David, lived with a terrible resentment and bitter malice toward David, put out a contract on his life, wanted to see him, see him dead. Now that's the first emphasis, this, this idea of, uh, of the emotions that David evoked wherever he went. People could not take David lightly. Uh, he wasn't a shallow, transient figure. He had incredible impact on others wherever he went. The second uh, word that's repeated a number of times in this passage is the word that's translated successful here. It occurs in verse uh, 5. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. It occurs again in verse 14. In everything he did, he had great success. Verse 15, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. And then again in verse 30, David met with more success than the rest of, uh, of Saul's officers. This, this is a difficult word to translate. It's an almost untranslatable word. Uh, it's translated variously in the Old Testament as successful or prudent or wise or thoughtful or skillful or shrewd. It's a word that's... Uh, that's given to Joshua when he was about to engage uh, in his first battle with the Canaanites. God said to him, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do all that's written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. 
you'll be wise in your military strategy. And history shows that Joshua was indeed extremely skillful as a soldier. It's a word that's used of the servant of, of the Lord, our Lord Jesus, in Isaiah 52, when it says, Behold, God says, Behold, my servant will be very successful, is the way the NIV translates it, very wise. And it's descriptive of the way our Lord made his way through his earthly ministry and, and then through the events surrounding the cross and the, the perfect poise, and quietness, and tranquility, and aplomb that he showed as as he faced into, into all those uh, difficult circumstances, he was indeed successful. The word occurs again in the, in the introduction to the, the book of Proverbs, where we're told, we're given in that introduction the purpose for all the, the axioms, Proverbs, in that, in that book. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight. That's why the Proverbs are given. They make us wise and they discipline us and they give us insight. And uh, he says it's to acquire a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and good and just. The Proverbs give us the capacity to make our way through life without cracking up on the rocks, without wrecking our families and without destroying our health and without wasting ourselves financially. That's what the Proverbs do. They make us successful in that sense that we're stewardly and we're wise and we're careful and we're astute and, and we're adroit in the way we live life. We live life skillfully. That's the idea. There are a number of psalms uh, that have a, a, as their title a maskeel of David. Psalm 52 through 55, Psalm 32, Psalm 142, I think it is. A number of psalms that, were, that David wrote that he designated as maskeels. And that's the noun form of, of that verb, to be successful. It means a psalm to make you successful. If you look at those psalms, you'll see that they all have to do with moral behavior, moral action, the way we live life uh, wisely and skillfully and, and with understanding. And that's the word it's applied to, to David here. And that explains to me why he's able to go through life with so much success. How do you account for David? David's a very young man. Late teens, early 20s at this time. And yet he's wise beyond his years. The scripture says he had success. He had that uncanny insight into life, that street smarts that enabled him to, to get through life undamaged. Live a very perilous experience and not be uh, imperiled by it. Uh, to deal with his with the court and the intrigues of the court, to deal with his difficult marriage. McCall was not an easy woman to be married to, as subsequent history proves. She was a social climber, an upward mobile woman with no heart for God. She ridiculed David because of his zeal for God. It's hard, hard marriage. I'm sure, it broke David's heart over and over again. And he had to deal with this crazy, maniacal, king that he was constantly in, in contact with, uh, Saul. And he had to deal with these tough, hardened old military veterans that he was uh, supposed to lead. And how did he do that? Uh, he, had, he had skill. He knew how to live successfully. Now, there's a third emphasis in this, 
in this section. It's, it's on the nearness of God, the proximity of God. Uh, three different times in the passage we're told that the Lord was with David. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. Verse 14, and everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. Uh, verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became more afraid of him. It's, uh, it's the presence of God that was the secret of David's success. Do you see that? That idea is linked directly. Those two ideas are linked directly in verse 14. And everything David did, he had great success. Why? Because the Lord was with him. It was because of the Lord's nearness that he was able to to live such a, a wise and successful uh, successful life. Yeah, every day, David rubbed shoulders with God, and God rubbed shoulders with him, and and David rubbed off on everybody that he he came in contact with. They couldn't take him lightly. They couldn't overlook him. They couldn't forget him. Because. Uh, in some sense, whenever they were in the presence of David, they were in the presence of God. Uh, I recently uh, heard a man telling a story about his grandchild. A uh, child had just begun to crawl, and he was playing ball with a little boy. He had him sitting on the floor, rolling a ball back and forth to him. And uh, the ball rolled away from the little boy. He batted it away trying to reach it, and it rolled away. So he, he goes over on his hands and knees, starts to crawl after it, and he gets across the room. The ball rolls under a dry sink and disappears. And the little boy just immediately stopped following. He sat down, started playing with something else, ignoring his grandpa. And uh, this fellow said to his daughter, the little boy's mother, who was sitting in the room, who is a practicing psychologist uh, in, the, in the field of human development, he said to her, what did I do? What's wrong? And she said, oh, nothing, nothing. Um, he just hasn't yet developed any object permanence. And uh, this fellow said, what, what, what do you mean? What's object permanence? He said, well, at his stage of development, if he can't see the ball, it isn't there. It doesn't exist. That's what object permanence is. When you grow up, you're able to establish that uh, something's there even though you can't, you can't see it. And, and when I heard that, I thought, bingo. That's my problem. I have this uh, you know, problem of arrested development. <laughs> I don't see God, so I don't think he's there. See, what we have to realize is that when the Bible says that David, that God was with David, it means that literally. That's not a symbol. It doesn't mean that uh, God was just there in, in terms of his influence or he had left his word with David or he was off in, in heaven somehow dispatching messengers, uh, angels to take care of David. No, what he meant is that he was right there with David in every situation, just as real as David. And the problem with a lot of us is that, you know, we, we really do think we're the only real people in, in the universe. Everybody else has less reality than we do, and we carry that over to God. We're real, but others aren't, and we're real, but God isn't. 
And it's even more difficult to believe in the reality of God's presence because we, we can't see Him. He's invisible. But He's there. He was with David just as He was with the apostles, just as He was with the disciples on the road to Emmaus after His resurrection, just as He was on that uh, day uh, when He cooked a meal for the disciples and they gathered and, and ate with Him after His uh, resurrection and before His ascension. He is present. He is real. And, and somehow we've got to grasp the reality of that, of that truth. You know, every morning the Lord woke David up and, and he said, come follow me. And David crawled out of his sleeping bag and, and he began to walk with the Lord. And he began to ask the Lord, now, how do I handle this situation with Saul? How do I deal with my difficult marriage? What can I say to, my, to the commanders that I'm responsible for? And how can I give them wise, uh, wise leadership? And uh, he and God just walked through the day, walking and talking and dialoguing and no event was, was too trivial to be trotted out. David brought out everything that was in his heart and talked it over with the Lord. That's what it means to acknowledge the nearness of God. He's in your car while you drive to work. He's in your kitchen. He's in your workshop. He's in your classroom. He's in the park. He's in the field. He's Everywhere you go, he goes with you. You may not know he's there, but he's there. And you can, you can walk with him and you can talk with him. I, I love that figure of walking with the Lord because, again, it's not just a figure. It's a reality. It was said of, of Noah that he walked with God. Among all the men of his age, Noah walked with God. Nobody else did. And Noah had this incredible problem. He had to build this super ship. And you know, here's this thing sitting out in his front yard, trashing up the neighborhood. You know, people didn't understand. They were offended by by Noah, and, and every morning he had to get up and say, okay, what do we do now? I, I don't think God just gave him the plans, the specs for the, for the boat and told him to go out and build it every day. Noah got up and said, okay, how long do we make this plank, and where do I get the pitch to put in here, and how, how do I uh, feed this uh, huge bunch of mouths that you've given to me? To, you know, every day he just talked over the events of his life, and that's exactly what David did, and that's what we should do. We get up in the morning and and we just acknowledge the reality of God. He's there. And, and we talk to him about everything, about our checkbooks, about our children, about the delays, God's uh, delays in our lives that are so uh, frustrating and cause us to fret so much. And we just walk and and we talk together. And that's what made David different among the men of his time, and that's what makes us different. That's why we begin to have impact uh, upon people. This is what Jesus called abiding. If you've ever wondered about that term, that's the old King James uh, term. If you abide in me, and in my words, abide in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. That's what that term means. Translated to remain in the, in the NIV, and that's a good translation. I explain it to people in terms of the analogy. Jesus said, I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branch. So the, 
same relationship that a branch sustains to the vine, we sustain to Christ. He's here, and I'm inexorably united to him. And our, our Lord said, if, if you abide in me, you remain in me. You just uh, go through the day trusting me, depending on me, talking to me, sharing your heart with me, asking me, listening to me. You'll bear much fruit. And the fruit there is uh, the fruit of Christian character, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, self-control, that list of fruitage that Paul uh, gives us in, in Galatians 5. So you just make your way through life hanging on to Him, grasping Him with all of your strength, knowing that He, ha- he has you in His grip. That's what's far more important. He's holding on to you. And, and he is right there, just as real as your adversaries, just as real as the difficult children you have to deal with, just as, diffi- just as real as the giants that you have to face. Whatever it is that you encounter through the day, he is more real than that adversary or that problem or that situation. And so you just talk it over with him and you trust him and you rely upon him and and you count on Him, and you depend on Him, and you begin to produce fruit, and people look at you and they say, what is it about that man or that woman that's so different? You know, the, the old sign uh, that you often uh, see on office walls, if you can keep your head around here while everybody else is losing theirs, you don't understand the situation. No, it's not always true. It may be true. It may just be uh, going through life like, like Alfred E. Newman, but... It's really true that if you can keep your head when everybody else is losing theirs, it may be a demonstration of the fact that uh, you're in contact with the living God. And, and you will have a tremendous impact upon, upon others. Your impact upon others will be just as powerful as God's and to some extent just as awesome. I really mean that. Now, that's the way Paul describes uh, our... Uh, our influence in Second Corinthians five, he, uh, two, excuse me, two, fifteen and sixteen. He uses uh, really the same an analogy, or the same figure that you have here in chapter eighteen of a victory celebration. He says, uh, "Thanks be unto God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the Word of God. On the contrary, we speak in Christ before God with sincerity like Men sent out from God. The figure that Paul is drawing on here is a triumphal procession in, the, in those days whenever Roman armies went out to battle and returned victorious, they were given a, a ticker tape parade down the streets of Rome. And again, there would be a dancing uh, women in the front and they would be carrying these uh, great uh, braziers of incense and burning incense, and the aroma of that incense would, would be wafted over the heads of the crowd and the people that were, uh, that were in the parade. 
and uh, that aroma would, would surround people. Couldn't get away from it. Powerful impact. That's what Paul is saying about our life when we, when we walk with God. Our windsong stick, sticks in their mind. They can't get us off of their minds. They can't forget us. They can't be neutral about us. We have an impact. We have an influence on them. We exude the aroma and the fragrance of Christ. Now, not everybody is going to uh, like that smell. To others, it's going to be a noxious odor, as Paul says. To some, we're going to smell like death itself, and that was true of Saul. But the point is, uh, we cannot be taken lightly. See, the tragedy of so many Christian lives is that, that we come in contact with people, and they walk away from us, and they are no different than when they came in contact with us. The mark of the woman or man who walks with God is that he has a, an enormous influence. It's a quiet influence. It isn't something you can generate on your own. It isn't something that uh, you're even conscious of. In fact, self-conscious uh, influence always comes across as tinny and phony and, and uh, faked. And, you know, it, it's something else. It's just that, uh, that un, unforgettable fragrance that we leave behind. That, that awesome influence that we have on people when we're exhibiting the character of God. Uh, Evelyn Underhill has a, uh, has a statement that I think expresses it well. St. John of the Cross says that those who are aware of God and abiding in Him have three distinguishing characteristics. Tranquility, gentleness, and strength. All our action, and now we're thinking specifically of action, is peaceful, gentle, and strong. That suggests, doesn't it, an immense depth and an invulnerable steadiness as the soul's abiding temper, a depth and a steadiness which come in part from the fact that our small actions are now part of the total action of God, whose spirit, as another saint has put it, works always in tranquility. Fuss, feverishness, anxiety, intensity, intolerance, instability, pessimism, and wobble, and every kind of hurry and worry, these, even on the highest levels, are signs of the self-made and self-acting soul. Those who walk with God are never like that. They share the quiet and noble qualities of the one with whom they, they walk. I think what Paul is saying, I think what we learn from this story of David is that we can have that kind of influence on others. That Wherever we go, we exhibit the character of God, his fruitage. We'll have influence. We'll touch people's lives. They'll, they'll walk away from us different women and different men. They'll, they can't forget us. They can't get us off our, their minds. They, they can't take us lightly. They, they can't think of us as superficial. And again, it's not something that we can generate on our own. It's, it's the result of his working in us. As Paul said in the passage that I quoted, who's equal to such a task? We're not. We're not. But when we come to recognize what we have in God, his proximity to us, and we begin to rely upon him, begin to count upon him, begin to abide, to remain to rest in his ability, then extraordinary things begin to happen through our lives. We begin to touch people in ways 
that we never imagined that we could influence. There will be that undeniable impact that's left behind in others' lives. I'd like to have you bow your heads. And, uh, it's inevitable in a congregation this size that there are women or men here that have never entrusted themselves to the Savior. Your concept of God, perhaps, has been formed by some, uh, some harsh and hard religion or by some parent who mistreated you or someone else who just put the fear of God in you and never really taught you about our, our Lord's amazing love. And you would like to come to Him. Uh, he, he says all you have to do is come and drink. And he'll satisfy that, uh, that thirst. So I would, I would ask you to do that just in the quietness of your own heart this morning. Say, Lord Jesus, I come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Lord, we do, all of us, every day come in that same spirit. It's... Um, so once for all thing, it's, it's an everyday thing, just coming and receiving, coming and receiving, taking from you what you've promised to provide. And it's our, our prayer this morning that the result of that eating and drinking of you would be a life of influence and impact upon others, that, that wherever we go uh, this, this coming week, that we would leave behind the fragrance of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to remind you of our uh, fellowship offering. There will be some people at the doors as you go out that will uh, receive your gifts just to help people in their congregation that are struggling financially have some physical needs. You're dismissed.